Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and how the tech Aria. Today, I'm finally going to wrap up our multi-episode saga on the history of social networks. This would be the sixth entry in that series. So for those who are just joining now, uh, clearly I've been talking about the history and evolution of various social networks, starting with some fairly primitive ones in the 90s. Moving on to things like online journals and profile-based networks of the early to mid-2000s. Then I talked about the wave of microblogging that would follow a few years later, where Twitter would stand on top of all the others. And in the last episode, we left off with the emergence of Snapchat and this concept of content that only stays visible for a short amount of time before it gets deleted. Now we're going to pick up with Google's second big attempt at a social network. Now, you might remember that the first go-around for Google was Orkut. That was developed by one of Google's engineers named Orkut during their 20% work week time where employees of Google at the time were allowed to dedicate up to 20% of their work week to personal projects. Orkut grew out of that. Uh, Orkut actually got popular in places like Brazil and India, but didn't really get a lot of traction here in the United States. And ultimately, Google would shut it down. Google had also attempted to make a dent in the social network space a couple of other times. Uh, In 2008, the company launched Google Friend Connect. So rather than being a full social network on its own, Google Friend Connect let users create a profile and rely on their OpenID username and password to log into compatible sites. And their Google Friend Connect profile would be sort of a repository of information that these other websites could get access to. So it was kind of like having a little dossier on yourself. And then any site that integrated Friend Connect 
code in it could kind of scan that dossier. And that might sound a bit sinister, but the flip side is you didn't have to go through all the steps of building out your profile every single time you joined a new site or service because it could be auto-populated based upon your Google Friend Connect profile. So it, it it's like it's like you're skipping character creation and going straight to the game for my gamers out there. Anyway, that project only lasted four years and Google ultimately shut it down. Uh, there were concerns about privacy and safety with Google Friend Connect, and it ultimately didn't stick around. And uh, yeah, it joined so many other Google projects that subsequently got shut down. So it really was more social network adjacent than being a, a social network itself. Another tool that lasted for even less time than Google Friend Connect was Google Buzz. And this was kind of a, a messaging, blogging, and social networking tool that Google launched in 2010. It took the place of an older tool called Google Wave. Google Wave was meant for collaboration in real time, and I was one of the few people who actually really liked it, but my use case was very specific. Anyway, Buzz had some features similar to sites like Twitter and Facebook. It integrated into other Google products. So it wasn't really that much of a standalone either. It was more like in conjunction with other stuff. But it also brought with it some massive privacy and safety problems. There were stories about people finding out that Buzz had automatically added people who were in their email contacts as followers. And in some cases, that meant that, say, an abusive ex might suddenly become very up to date on what their former partner is up to because they had been automatically, you know, added as a follower. Buzz did not last very long at all. It was shut down in 2011, just a year after its launch, though some of the features would find their way into other Google products, which again, not unusual for Google. But neither Buzz nor Friend Connect were really full social networks on their own. But the same could not be said for Google Plus, an earnest attempt to do Facebook better than Facebook. So Google announced the social network in the summer of 2011. Uh, Vic Gondotra and Bradley Horowitz spearheaded this effort and proclaimed that the problem with sharing stuff online is that sharing was broken. It was too difficult to share stuff with subsets of friends without flooding everyone in your contacts list or having to painstakingly choose person after person in a long list of contacts. So Google Plus wanted to fix this by introducing the concept of circles. So the idea was that users would organize their contacts. So their friends, their family, their coworkers, uh, casual acquaintances, and they would organize them into groups that could be called circles. And you could designate specific circles to be specific things. Maybe you have one circle that you dedicate just for your family members. So you don't put anyone in there that's not family. Maybe you have another circle for your closest friends, like the people that you really hang out with the most and talk with the most. Maybe you have another circle just for your coworkers or your professional contacts. Maybe you even get more specific. Maybe you create circles for folks that you like to play basketball with. Or if you're me, maybe you make a circle with your geek friends that you hang out with at places like science fiction conventions or renaissance fairs. And that really is true. I actually did have a circle on Google Plus just for the folks I knew from renaissance fairs. For those who don't know, I used to be a street performer at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. Uh, that was a good time. I occasionally had tech stuff fans recognize me there, which if you, you know, you have to stay in character when you're, when you're working as a street character at the Renaissance Festival. Let me tell you, those days were some of the most fun and challenging days in my stay at a, as a performer at the festival. Now, obviously, some friends would fall into more than one circle, right? Like, I doubt that you have a friend out there that you think, this is my friend who does this and only this, and that's the only place they fit in my life. Maybe you do, in which case you are far more compartmentalized than I am. But that's okay if a friend fell into more than one circle. You could actually put them in as many circles as you needed to. So if your cousin also happens to be your coworker and also is the bard in your LARP group, you could put your cousin in all three of those respective circles. 
And the idea was that you would organize all your contacts in ways that reflected how they intersected with your life. Then when you wanted to post something, because you might say, well, why would you? I mean, what's the point in organizing to this degree? Well, when you posted something on Google+, you could actually choose which circles saw that post. So maybe you wanted to post about something at work, but only your coworkers would really care about it. Uh, Or alternatively, maybe you wanted to grouse about work, but you definitely didn't want any of your coworkers or your boss to see it. So you could select which circles would actually be able to see this post and everyone else would remain blissfully ignorant. So like if you knew certain friends of yours loved your pet, then you could put them in a circle and every time you shared a pet photo, it would show up for them. But the people who couldn't care less about your pet, you know, bad people, they wouldn't see it at all. Still, getting everyone set up this way, you might think, especially if you have a lot of friends or acquaintances, it sounds like it's a lot of work, right? Like, man, there's nothing like sitting down to a brand new social network and then spending the next eight hours sorting people into different circles. But Google made this a little more fun by creating a a drag and drop interface. So you would create a circle and then you would have all your contacts showing up as little photo icons. So you could see pictures of your friends and then you would just click on an icon and drag them to whichever circle you wanted to put them in. You could do that over and over again, which admittedly is more fun than just going through a checklist and clicking a little box to put a check mark next to it. Eventually, you would also be able to create a circle that would mute people in that circle. So you're essentially blocking people that way. So if there was someone who was harassing you or just irritating you, or maybe it was just someone that you're like, I don't want this person to ever be able to see my stuff. You could put them in that circle and then they would be kind of sequestered from all the stuff you were doing, which was handy. Another feature in Google Plus was called Sparks. This was a discovery tool to help people find content that they related to. Uh, Sparks had topics divided up into categories. So you could go to the Sparks page and you would see categories like sports or fashion or movies or whatever, and you could click into those. Or you could also search specific terms within the Sparks page and you would get results that way, which would include results of users who related to those search topics. And Google Plus gave us an early version of Hangouts, uh, a feature that would find its way into other Google products down the line. Uh, At one point, it was a standalone feature, so Hangouts was its own thing. Then it got kind of pulled into Gmail, and Hangouts became sort of an instant messenger um, aspect of Gmail. Then it became phased out for Google Chat. It's just kind of the way Google products work, is that they hop around a lot and they morph into other things or eventually get phased out for some other service where there's too much overlap. Anyway, Hangouts would allow people to do video chats pretty early on and it had a really cool suite of features. It could allow up to 10 people to connect in a session and the software kind of acted like a digital producer. I remember the first time I used Hangouts and how impressed I was because it would automatically switch to whomever was talking at a given moment. So let's say you're having a panel discussion and you've got five people on the panel. Whomever's talking would get highlighted and would become like the big picture on the screen and would, as long as they were talking, they would be there. And then when someone else would take over, it would switch. And yeah, this is second nature now, right? We see it in lots of tools like Microsoft Teams or in Zoom. But at the time... It was a brand new thing, and it was really impressive. It was probably one of the most impressive aspects of Google+, uh, at least in my estimation. Now, when Google first announced this social network in the summer of 2011, it said that there would be, you know, a limited beta program. And so they were only going to let in a relatively small number of people, and you would submit to be considered. And I was one of those folks who got let in at the very beginning. And uh, let me tell you, that felt good. Like, I recognize what a elitist kind of thing that is. Like, I I get it. Like, I've seen it happen numerous times. And I have to say, when you experience it, you're like, oh, this is what it feels like to be part of an exclusive club. It feels nice. Uh, 
you know, from an objective point of view, I think it's a destructive feeling, but I, I, I have experienced it and I gotta say it does feel good when it happens. It also meant that I was experiencing Google plus when almost everybody who was on the platform was either a tech journalist or someone who worked in, you know, tech communications to the public, or it was like entrepreneurs. It was like people who had been in charge of launching startups. And that meant suddenly I was in a social network with my professional peers. And you know, no one else was there. This meant I actually had the chance to interact with my professional peers way more than I typically would because I just, you know, I was, I, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not in New York and I'm not in San Francisco. So I'm not in one of the places or Los Angeles. I'm not in one of the places where there were these sort of a nexus of tech journalism. So this was great for me. I loved it. Unfortunately, it also meant that the aspect of Google Plus I liked most was the one that obviously was unsustainable because you you could not keep Google Plus to this incredibly exclusive limited social network. It would not have done well and it would have died anyway. To succeed, Google had to open this up to everyone. Otherwise, what's the point? But that would also mean that those of us who were, you know, the, the tight tech journalist folks kind of got pushed apart as more people flooded in, which again, small price to pay. It doesn't, it wouldn't have worked otherwise, but it lost its appeal for me pretty quickly. And I wasn't alone. Google Plus was kind of a flash in the pan. Uh, one that a lot of people paid attention to early on, but that was mostly because it was so exclusive. And then you had a flood of people who joined as soon as they had the opportunity to. By the end of 2011, there were something like 90 million users, but that still wasn't enough to build a sustainable momentum to keep Google Plus going, and interest began to fade fairly quickly. I'll talk more about that after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today 
and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, so Google Plus launches. It gets a lot of attention. Everybody wants to be part of the the club. The doors open and then everyone rushes in and then people say, oh, is this it? Like, that's almost exactly what happened, right? Everyone finally got access to Google Plus and then they were wondering what all the fuss was about because the thing that made Google Plus special for the early people who were there was the fact that they were able to chat with people they knew or at least knew of and there was no one else there. That's what made it special. Well, if that's the only thing that makes it really special, then that goes away as soon as you open up the gates. So it became kind of a a paradox or catch-22. Now, one thing that was a really heavy contributor to Google Plus's decline was the company's insistence on users going by their real names. And Google would ban accounts that were formed under pseudonyms and handles. And because Google was consolidating services under a single login, this would affect not just Google+, it also reached into stuff like Gmail and YouTube accounts. In fact, by 2013, Google had made a policy that said anyone who wanted to be able to leave comments on YouTube videos must first have a Google Plus account. They wanted these to be tightly integrated services. Now, that would mean that you would have to use your real name. So there was a lot of resistance. Now, on the one side, you could say, okay, I get it. This creates accountability, right? You can't just sit there and slag people off. If it's your real name and everyone knows who you are, you don't have the protection of anonymity to hide behind. So you're not going to be as nasty as some of these trolls are, right? First of all, wrong. There are people who will be nasty no matter what name they're going by. But secondly, there were others who were pointing out that anonymity provided protection for people who were really vulnerable, right? So if you were part of a vulnerable population or maybe you lived in a country that has like an authoritarian government or a really powerful religious like leadership organization that could uh, oppress you, then you don't want to be constricted, right? You, you don't want, you want to still be able to communicate, but you don't want to be punished for the way you communicate. And meanwhile, YouTube creators were protesting that their success was now being co-opted by Google in an attempt to boost Google Plus membership numbers. They said, the only reason you're doing this is because we're getting hundreds of millions of views and you just want to convert that into Google Plus memberships. So you're restricting anyone from being able to, to participate in YouTube unless they also have a Google Plus account. It got really ugly. Eventually, Google would reverse that decision. Now, on top of all that, a lot of folks just didn't like the Google Plus experience. Like I've said before, a lot of Google products feel like they're made by engineers for engineers, and they can sometimes lack some of the UI and aesthetic that makes other products more user-friendly and more welcoming. Uh, I am an Android user through and through, but even as an Android fanboy, I recognize how iOS is way more user-friendly than Android is. In April 2014, Vic Gondotra left Google, and that was the beginning of the dismantling of Google+. It kind of got scrapped for parts. Hangouts was pulled out of Google+. Uh, its photo system was kind of pulled out and spun off into its own thing. Google+, Plus would limp along for a few more years, but in 2018, Google had to admit that some buggy software also meant that potentially data belonging to thousands of users could have been leaked accidentally to third parties. And it was just too much. Like that was kind of the, the death stroke against Google plus. And in 2019, Google pulled the plug on the service. So 
now we're starting to get into kind of the slowdown for social network launches. We do still have several to talk about, but they don't happen as frequently as they did earlier in this series. By late 2011, MySpace had completed its time with News Corp. It got sold off. It had been purchased for $580 million, but then was sold for $35 million and was just one representation of massive losses in the social network space. Meanwhile, LinkedIn was getting ready for its initial public offering, which would happen in late 2011. Facebook was getting ready for its, which would happen in 2012. But as far as launches go, things were starting to settle down a little bit. You had a few dominant players occupying specific places within the ecosystem, right? You had Facebook sitting on top of the profile-based general social network, you know, the thing that at least I always associate social network with something like Facebook, but that may also be because of the time that I got involved in social networks and I just associate it with that because that's that's what social network meant to me. Uh, LinkedIn was clearly the destination for professionals looking to build out their professional network. Twitter was top of microblogging. Instagram was pretty much the dominant photo-based social network. YouTube was the undisputed champion of user-generated video at the time. Meanwhile, other networks were either getting acquired or shut down or both. But 2011 was also when we would get the birth of Twitch. Now, Twitch actually spun off of an earlier live streaming video site called Justin.TV or just Justin TV. That is an interesting story all on its own. I think I've even done an episode about Justin TV many years ago. But anyway, Justin TV started around 2007. And it was a site that was a way to to engage in the activity of life casting. That's where a user can broadcast their daily activities via online video, uh, live online video. And that idea really caught on. But before long, there was a subcommunity of gamers who became the fastest growing section of this service. The trend puzzled some people because who the heck wants to watch someone else play a video game? That's what the old people were saying. Uh, I was not saying that, not because I wasn't already old. I, I was, I was already old, but I was also a kid in the 80s who loved to go to the arcade and just watch people who were really good at specific games play those games. I loved watching that. So to me, this was just an evolution of something I had loved doing when I was a little kid. And so I was totally on board with the threat of this gaming community kind of overshadowing everything else on Justin TV. The decision was made to spin it off into its own entity, and it was called Twitch. Now, of course, Twitch would prosper and Justin TV would not. It would ultimately shut down. So Twitch would survive and the little spinoff would actually become the dominant force. And oh, how the turns have tabled. Twitch was attracting millions of visitors each month, even in its early days. So by 2012, after it had been up for like essentially a year, the numbers were up to 20 million visitors per month, which is a big old yowza. Communities would grow up around specific personalities or specific game titles. It would depend, like, you had some people who would follow multiple uh, personalities who were all playing similar games, and then you had people who were just becoming, like, celebrities because of their skill, or in some cases, lack of skill for specific games. I will say, it's way easier to become incredibly popular on Twitch if you're incredible at a game than it is if you're terrible at a game. It's still possible if you're very entertaining as someone who is terrible at games, but uh, but people tend to gravitate toward the, the folks who do incredible uh, feats while playing games. Anyway, it was not your typical social network, not like a, a Facebook or a Twitter. Uh, it wasn't about you creating this network of contacts necessarily, but folks did form friendships in various streamer channels, you know, you had people who became friends and would send direct messages to one another and would continue to communicate outside of a streamer's, you know, streaming schedule, that kind of stuff. But it wasn't really designed to facilitate networking the same way as Facebook or even Twitter would. But uh, it does fit into 
the the overall puzzle of social networks. And it also was money. By 2014, you had some really big fish that were eyeing Twitch as a potential acquisition. And the two biggest would be Google, our old pal, and then the Jeff Bezos money train known as Amazon. Now, reportedly, these two companies got into something of a bidding war against one another in an attempt to win over Twitch. Amazon obviously ultimately won that fight. Well, I say obviously. If you're not familiar with Twitch, you may not know that Twitch is an Amazon property. It is. Amazon bought it in 2014, and the final price was in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. So just imagine what the world would have been like if Google had bought Twitch instead of Amazon. My guess is that by 2019, Twitch would have been dead. It would have been shut down just by just by going by the history of Google's acquisitions in the past. Uh, as it stands, Google would instead try to compete against Twitch by launching features in YouTube that would allow for live streaming, specifically game live streaming. And there was an attempt to kind of you know, shift video game streaming there. And don't get me wrong, that is a thing on YouTube. It does exist. You can go to YouTube and watch live streaming of video games there. There are some uh, players that I watch on occasion. They're all English because I only have time to watch it early in the morning. And so it's afternoon over there. But yeah, that's um, that's still very much a thing on YouTube. So there, it, it is competing against Twitch, at least a, to a certain degree. But Twitch is still undisputably the the leader in that space. Facebook would also uh, do the same sort of thing. It would try and create its own video game streaming arm because, of course, Facebook will never let a good idea go uncopied. Uh, if there's anything that remotely thre threatens to pull people's attention away from Facebook properties, the company is going to attempt to replicate that in order to, to get those eyeballs back on, on its own properties. Amazon would incorporate some of its own features into Twitch, including giving Amazon Prime members the ability to pick a streamer and subscribe to that streamer as part of their Prime membership. The way Twitch works uh, is that you can actually subscribe to streamers for a monthly fee, and it's determined by level. And uh, in return, you get access to streams and maybe some other stuff depending upon the streamer, like sometimes it's things like special emotes and that kind of stuff. And uh, the way it worked with Amazon is that if you're an Amazon Prime member, one subscription is included in your Prime membership. Um, if you wanted to subscribe to more than one streamer, then for every subsequent streamer, you've got to pay up. But for that first one, you can use your Amazon Prime membership to subscribe. And uh, yeah, that was one of the benefits of being an Amazon Prime member and also being a, a user of Twitch. Now, Twitch is a very complex topic. There's tons of stuff to talk about throughout its history. There's controversial policy changes. There's disputes between streamers and Twitch itself with regards to stuff like compensation. There's issues around content itself. I mean, just a conversation around hot tub streamers alone would be exhausting. And I promise I'll do a full episode or two about Twitch in the future to really kind of dig down into it. But since it only leans against social networks, uh, at least as how I traditionally define social networks, I'm going to leave off at this point. I'll just say Twitch is still very much alive and well. It is, however, not doing as well as it was at the height of the pandemic. The um, unique visitor numbers are down by a couple of million, but, you know, that's to be expected. Now, in late 2012, Twitter acquired a short-form video product called Vine, which had not even launched at that point. The founders, Colin Kroll, Russ Yusuprov, and Dom Hoffman, had only started to work on the Vine project in the summer of 2012. And then Twitter acquired them before the end of 2012. Their idea was to create a social network where people could build very short videos and share them. These videos would just last six seconds and then they would loop back around to the beginning and just repeat endlessly until you navigated away from the video. It was the user video version of microblogging. The format would reward those who put really careful thought and work into their videos 
and would even propel them to celebrity. I mean, six seconds is not a long time, but it's the perfect amount of time if you're really clever and you are patient and you're able to create a video that just has a perfect punch to it. Moreover, creators plan to make Vines easy to share across other social networks. So the idea was that, all right, not only will you be able to create these videos that will live on Vine, you'll be able to share them on other platforms. So you'll be able to share them on things like Facebook or Twitter, where there are a lot of eyeballs, or at least send them back to your Vine page so they could see them there. Then Twitter bought the service for somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million, which would be about like $10 million per founder, which is a pretty sweet deal. The first version of Vine was available only for iOS devices. Android had to wait for another six months. And Vine was insanely popular at first. It became one of the most downloaded apps on iOS within those first six months. But under Twitter, things would not continue to move in the right direction. Uh, there were reported struggles between the Vine team and the parent company of Twitter, Rivals like Facebook's Instagram or Snapchat, which we talked about in the last episode, started to include features that kind of crept into Vine's wheelhouse. Content creators were getting increasingly frustrated that they could get millions of views, but there were no clear paths to monetization through Vine, unless you landed some sort of sponsorship deal on your own, which would be despite Vine, not because of Vine. In 2016, Twitter, having failed to leverage Vine into some sort of silver bullet to solve all its woes, chose to shut Vine down. Now, at the time, Twitter was looking around for a potential buyer. <laughs> it would have to wait another six years for that to happen. The co-founders for Vine had already left the company by 2016, and Twitter was shifting focus to Periscope, which is its live streaming service that got incorporated into Twitter itself. Vine's shine had worn off, with people migrating to other platforms for short-form video, and so it died. Now, recently, Elon Musk has talked about potentially bringing Vine back, though things are so chaotic over at Twitter right now that I'm not sure if that's still high up on the priority list. I mean, I'm hearing that the company has stopped paying rent on its offices as a cost-cutting measure, so things are all sorts of messy over there. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we will power through the rest of the history of social networks, at least as far as I have deigned to cover it. <laughs> but first, these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great. You see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, we're back and we're up to 2013. Because like I said, we're seeing fewer and fewer launches at this point. So in 2013, a service called Yik Yak launched. It incubated here in Atlanta. At one point, I even had the task of interviewing the co-founders of Yik Yak. That night was one of the low points of my career. Anyway, Yik Yak's pitch was that it was an anonymous, regionalized message board of sorts. So logging into Yik Yak, would show you messages that were left by people who were in your general area, like within five miles of where you were. But you didn't have, you know, persistent usernames or anything like that to go by. You know, the, the idea was that you wouldn't be able to positively link a post to a specific person easily, though folks would figure out ways to do that using various tricks. So the idea was that you could have the equivalent of a local bulletin board and you could leave stuff up on the bulletin board anonymously. And the service was mainly targeting places like college campuses. And if you think, hey, this sounds like it wouldn't take very much for folks to use this kind of service to heap abuse on each other. Well, you're right. Now, that's not to say everyone using Yik Yak was doing so maliciously or with ulterior motives or anything like that. But the combination of anonymity and locality inevitably led to abuse. There were real issues with content moderation right off the bat. And folks who were already vulnerable were in a particularly bad place. Let me create a hypothetical situation to illustrate a potential problem with Yik Yak. Let's say there is a queer identifying student on a college campus. And th this student hasn't chosen to come out for whatever reason. But let's say an acquaintance of this student has learned about their sexual orientation and anonymously decides to blast that information on Yik Yak, you know, revealing this student's sexual orientation, even though they themselves have not chosen to do that. Now other folks in the area have learned of this very personal detail that our student didn't want to share for whatever reason. That could bring our hypothetical student into real danger, either from others or, depending on the circumstances, potentially from themselves. So the potential for harm was considerable. And this sort of stuff was actually playing out in various places. Not to say that every interaction on Yik Yak was bad, or even that most of them were, or that there weren't some really valuable interactions on Yik Yak. There were. It's just the potential for harm was one that was becoming increasingly undeniable. So on several campuses, Yik Yak was called out for facilitating hate speech. Now, there is a good argument to be made that the students behind the hate speech are really the ones to blame, right? They're the ones at fault. However, Yik Yak was giving these students essentially a megaphone to amplify their hate and to do so under the cover of anonymity. Yik Yak incorporated geofencing into the app, and this essentially would digitally erase certain areas, particularly around things like high schools and such, from Yik Yak's service. And so it was an effort to cut back on harassment and bullying. It wouldn't allow you to post anything within those specific regions. You'd have to move out of the area before you could post something to Yik Yak. Now, Yik Yak was controversial, but it also lost a lot of steam pretty quickly, partly because in an effort to fight against the, the pressure that the creators were getting from various outlets. Uh, they tried to tie identities to 
accounts. And once you stripped anonymity away, a lot of people said, oh, well, now I don't want to use it. And some something like 75% of users had dumped it by 2016. So the following year, Yik Yak would shut down and Square Incorporated bought the assets of Yik Yak for about a million dollars. Uh, Square was founded by Jack Dorsey of Twitter, which gives us another social network connection. Now, in 2021, some entity whose identity I do not know bought the Yik Yak IP and a relaunched version of Yik Yak came out in August of 2021 for iOS. Uh, Android users wouldn't get their version until 2022, this year, as I record this. The service is again the subject of controversy. There have been incidents of harassment. There's been bullying problems. There's been a surprising number of bomb threats called at various college campuses following the launch of the app. So there's no telling how long this version of Yikak will last. Uh, the company whoever's running it, says that it has a one-strike-and-you're-out policy, saying that if you do anything to violate the terms of service, that's it, you're banned. That's something. But it remains to be seen if that approach to content moderation is actually going to be enough to keep Apple and Google from pulling the app out of its stores, because they have done that in the past for other services. Okay, now we're up to 2014 when a pair of Chinese developers having struggled to build a product that would have a strong commercial value developed an app that let users upload short video snippets of themselves lip syncing to popular music. This became a service called musical.ly or musically. And it became a bit of a fad, just not in China. No, no, the place where Musical.ly became a success was in America. Now, that early success shifted the team's focus to support services in the United States instead of in China. They weren't big enough to do both, and China just wasn't, it wasn't taking off there. So they established an office in Santa Monica, California, and the app became pretty darn popular. You also started seeing these videos pop up on other social networks, like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. From 2014 to 2017, the app continued to enjoy success, primarily among uh, American teenagers and Renaissance Festival performers for some reason. And in 2017, another Chinese company, this one with the name ByteDance, would acquire Musical.ly for several hundred million dollars. Some estimates made that as high as a billion. All right, now... We have to switch gears for just a second because this next bit is part of Musical.ly's story too, but it's a, a separate branch that converges with Musical.ly. So we go back to 2016, so before ByteDance acquires Musical.ly. At this point, Musical.ly is doing well in the United States, and ByteDance in China launches a service called Douyin. That's D-O-U-Y-I-N. Douyin is a short-form video service giving users the ability to record videos ranging in length from just a few seconds to up to around 10 minutes. Douyin saw rapid adoption in China. It was successful there. But ByteDance also wanted to expand into other markets. The company realized, like, in order to be really successful, we need to go to other places where there are, you know, billions of other people. So this can be challenging for Chinese companies. So ByteDance is thinking, how do we expand? How do we build on the success we're seeing here in China and other places? And the answer came in the form of Musical.ly. So ByteDance in 2017 acquires Musical.ly. Then it sort of mushed Musical.ly up with Douyin. This created a new company, a new service called TikTok. So Musical.ly kind of grew a whole bunch of features and became TikTok. So ByteDance then got access to Musical.ly's American user base. And meanwhile, Musical.ly's users got access to lots of Douyin features like filters and lens effects and that kind of stuff. And that is the birth of TikTok, which dates to around 2018. Now, TikTok obviously became incredibly popular. It attracted younger users, much to the chagrin of companies like Meta slash Facebook, which desperately wants younger users in order to flesh out its steadily aging user base on its other platforms. And TikTok, being the subsidiary of a Chinese company, has become the subject of a lot of controversy here in the United States. 
uh, representatives from both sides of the political aisle, meaning both liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans, have called for a ban on TikTok unless the company becomes a wholly owned and operated U.S. company with no connections to a Chinese one. For its part, TikTok has repeatedly made changes to try and stay in operation while still remaining a ByteDance subsidiary. Uh, they migrated all of their data onto U.S.-owned and operated servers that are owned by Oracle. And they've also, you know, crossed their hearts and hoped to die and promised that the company is not some sort of intelligence-gathering front for the Chinese Communist Party. But uh, there's still a major concern in the United States that ranges from worrying that TikTok is, in fact, an intelligence-gathering tool that's just funneling data about U.S. citizens off to the Chinese government to a really addictive uh, social network that's ruining kids' minds by having them focus on these short-form videos, and now they can't pay attention to anything that's longer than 10 seconds. If that's true, I'm doomed because uh, this episode is already more than 40 minutes long, so no one's ever going to listen to me, right? Anyway, the fate of TikTok has yet to be decided. Like, as we talk, there are uh, lawmakers who are pushing forward proposed bills to ban TikTok. But there's no telling that that's actually going to become a thing. Meanwhile, Biden uh, is actually looking, President Biden in the United States is looking to come to an agreement with TikTok for a, a means of operation where there are assurances that national security is fine that TikTok is not doing anything to endanger American citizens and that it can continue to operate as it has been. So that this is still an unfolding situation. Uh, my guess is that if politicians do vote to ban TikTok, they're going to upset a whole bunch of future voters. But I guess they figure that's a problem for future politicians. In 2015, gamers slash developers slash entrepreneurs Stan Vishnevsky and Jason Citron launched Discord, which actually grew out of a failed attempt to make a compelling online multiplayer game. So the game didn't turn out so well. But one feature within the game was a big hit, and that was the chat feature built into the game system. And Citron and Vishnevsky realized that, generally speaking, in-game communication systems stink. And worse yet, the tools that gamers were using to get around that also weren't that good because not every game has an in-game communication system in the first place. And those that do have them, a lot of them leave a lot to be desired. So these two come up with an idea. Why not create a service that lets gamers create a virtual space, which that would be called a server, though that's more of a term of convenience than of accuracy. You're not really talking about a specific like physical server here. And then use that space to communicate with one another, no matter what type of game they might want to play. And it took some time to work out the technical bugs and get voice chat to be really reliable. But by the spring of 2015, Discord was starting to get attention in gaming circles. Over time, people would create Discord servers for all sorts of stuff, not just gaming. There are Discord servers that center around specific hobbies, specific communities, and specific creators or shows. Uh, I keep thinking I should really launch, I think I actually do have a Discord for tech stuff, but I don't have the time to maintain it properly. I need to get somebody to be able to do that for me, or at least with me, so that it doesn't overwhelm me and, and prevent me from doing everything else I have to do for my job. But I keep thinking I need to have one because I would love to have a, a, a nice, healthy tech stuff community of listeners who could chat with each other and suggest show topics and just get to know one another. I would love for that to happen. Um, I just haven't had the time to be able to dedicate it to make it a good place. So yeah, but anyway, discord is another kind of alternative to other social networks. And now we're in the home stretch and I don't have as much to say about these because they're all younger. So there's not that much history. Uh, in 2016, we got Mastodon, uh, not the heavy metal band that came, comes out of Atlanta because they've been around since like 2000. But I'm talking about the software people are using to create servers that kind of like an island of a social network. 
Um, Mastodon came out of a, uh, the ideas of a German programmer named Eugene Rochko. Uh, he graduated university and came up with this idea. He liked Twitter, but he didn't like that a service could be subjected to the whim of a company or, as we would discover in 2022, the whims of a temperamental billionaire. He wanted to approach social networks from a decentralized standpoint and thus developed the idea of these independent social network islands, which are called servers in Mastodon. So when you join Mastodon, you actually have to choose a home server, and that becomes your base of operations. But it doesn't limit communication to just other people who are also on that same server. Uh, it is easier to communicate and to find people who are on your own server than it is to find people and communicate with them who are on other servers, but it's still possible. It's still something that you can do. Uh, each server has its own policies, so that's something to be aware of before you join one. You might want a server that has, you know, lots of protections in place for users, for example, or maybe you prefer one that's a little more loosey-goosey. But unlike other social networks, Mastodon is not ad-supported. Uh, it is community-supported instead. So it might be attractive to folks who are tired of having their personal data harvested and sold all over the place. Mastodon saw a big upsurge in membership when the drama over at Twitter really took off as Elon Musk took control. Uh, I'll say that it's a little less user-friendly than some other social networks, but you get out of it what you put into it. Now, let's wrap up. Around this time, around 2016 or so, we started to see a rise of far-right politics here in the United States. It's been going on all over the world, but in the U.S., that's really when it started to become evident. Uh, the, a few social networks have appeared and taken on the role of serving as a kind of foundation, like a meeting ground for people who share far-right views. So these sites include ones like Gab, which was founded in 2016 by Andrew Torba and Ekrem Buyaka, I'm sure I've mispronounced his name or their name. I apologize. Uh, there was Parler, which was founded in 2018 by John Matz Jr., Jared Thompson, and Rebecca Mercer. And of course, Truth Social, founded in 2021 by Donald Trump. Now, these platforms share some common goals, namely to serve as a place that is free from the perceived censorship found on mainstream platforms. I do say perceived censorship on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, there's a persistent but largely unfounded belief that these sites have a hefty anti-conservative bias. Now, in my experience, the real issue is that content moderation policies bump up against certain extremist rhetoric, like hate speech, misinformation, that kind of thing. So it's not so much that there's a problem with conservative points of view, but rather problems with things that people who will also identify themselves as conservatives sometimes employ. And this is a huge disservice to anyone who is a conservative, but does not, you know, advocate for things like hate speech. I feel for you out there. I am not a conservative, but I feel for those conservatives who are consistently represented by people who are um, hate mongers. That has to be exhausting. Anyway, Gab, Parler, and Truth Social have all been cited as serving as a home for hate speech and extremism. And again, I'm sure that people who identify as conservatives who don't adhere to those beliefs are sick and tired of that. So not great for those folks. But yeah, that, that's the reputation they have. They've also had a really rocky reputation and, and history with Apple and Google and have often seen their services pulled from those stores. Boom, that's it. I'm done. That's the history of social networks as far as I'm concerned. I left some out, but I covered the big ones, and we saw the different waves of similarity, including this one of far-right uh, platforms. But that's it for this episode. I don't even have time to sign off. I'm just going to go and have a cookie, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to Brand New on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.